This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I am very happy to welcome back to the show Dr. Anthony DiGiorgio. Dr. DiGiorgio is a uh, neurosurgeon at UCSF in San Francisco, and uh, frankly, one of my favorite people to follow on X, nay Twitter, um, where he frequently comments on the goings-on in neurosurgery and economics and healthcare and training. And I asked him on the show today to talk about a number of these issues and how they intersect with our field, our day-to-day life, and uh, where our specialty is going. Dr. DiGiorgio, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate what you guys are doing for the field. I love this podcast, so it's an honor to be on. Well, it's uh, very kind of you to say. Um, So we were just talking before recording about uh, if either of us are actually qualified to talk about some of these questions, and certainly you are more than I. So for our listeners and to set kind of a a framework for the conversation we're about to have and why we hold the opinions that we're going to put forth, talk a little bit about your background in economics, your interest in it, and how you came to love this non-neurosurgical part of your life. Yeah, I, I would hardly say I have any, any qualifications, but thank you for setting right. the bar, bar pretty low. Um, so, you know, in residency, I realized so much of my day-to-day life was governed not by what was medically necess- necessary, but uh, sort of bureaucratically necessary. And the more I tried to investigate why this was the case, the more I started peeling back the onions and realized a lot of it does come down to economics. So I obtained my math- master's in healthcare administration from LSU. Uh, during my research year in residency, and that had a lot of uh, political and economic uh, coursework. And so that sort of sparked my interest. And since then, uh, I have been reading economics uh, literature pretty consistently. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts is called Econ Talk, uh, which is sponsored by the Hoover Institution. Um, my wife hates hearing me talk about it every week. Uh, <laughs> when I when the new episode comes out, I always bore her with a, a synopsis. Um, and some of my favorite authors um, have turned out to be uh, some pretty well-written economists. So I've, I've read a lot of um, F.A. Hayek and Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell and sort of uh, have this economic framework based around those resources. Uh, three names that loom large in my own life and reading and uh, intellectual framework as well. Uh, so just for me, at least, go, going into a conversation like this, saying that you're a fan of those three authors is all the qualification you need. So I wanted to build this conversation around the concept of scarcity. And so maybe we can start there in an economic context, because I I think American medicine writ large and certainly neurosurgical practice in the United States, um, we don't think about scarcity. We like to do everything. We do as much as possible. We do anything that we can for our patients, even in the most Uh, what you could call nihilistically futile settings very frequently. And I think we have that mindset of the heroic measure and trying to clutch someone back from the jaws of death and and save them. But when we put on the hat of the economist, we know that resources are limited and we know that we're playing in this sandbox where there's a finite number of uh, people in the sandbox. There's a finite amount of space in the sandbox. And there's only so many toys to go around. So maybe from the economist standpoint, talk about uh, scarcity and how it, you know, how that concept comes to mind in your daily practice. 
I think we're a little bit victims of our own success in in society, um, where we don't necessarily have to face the realities of economic scarcity every day. Right? If you go to a third world country, <clears throat> you don't get the pedicle screws unless you can pay for them up front. Um, and thankfully, we don't live in that sort of society. We have socialized a lot of the cost for these things. Uh, so we don't have to be face to face with the reality of scarcity, but scarcity is still a reality. Um, so going back to some of our mutual favorite authors, one of the favorite quotes I have from Thomas Sowell is the first lesson of economics is scarcity. There's never enough of anything to satisfy all those who want it. The first lesson mm -hmm. of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. And <laughs> yeah. I think we see a lot of that, especially in the rhetoric that's out there, that we can just give limitless resources to everybody who needs it. And it's, you know, I don't have as much of a problem with us doing heroic measures that, that maybe cost a lot of money uh, to, to save a life. I think that's probably worth it. I know we're certainly guilty of that at our, at our, some of our institutions. I think it's more the, the rhetoric around that every single person can have this equivalent access to care and equivalent quality of care. Um, and that's just not based on any sort of reality, right? Just think of, of the example you or I, if, if we have a healthcare problem, we kind of circumvent the system that somebody with fewer resources doesn't have the ability to do. And not everyone can get that. Not everyone can get a healthcare provider's cell phone number to access 24 seven. Um, not everyone can get the same access that um, a well-resourced individual has. And that's just not, a, that's not reality. And that, that Thomas Sowell quote that I gave is the, the title of that piece is called, Is Reality Optional? And it's not, right? So there, there's a limited number of neurosurgeons. There's a limited number of, um, of ORs. There's a limited number of hospital beds. Uh, thankfully, we, we you know, in the U.S., we operate at a bit of a surplus, and we, we've heavily subsidized a lot of these things. But the, the reality of economic scarcity still exists. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of access to care is one that, it, as you rightly point out, it's very easy to forget when you're in the fold of American healthcare. I mean, for myself, my friends, my family members, if anyone has some routine, low-level medical issue, it's so easy for them to call or text me. I'll call in a prescription. And sometimes I think, wow, if they didn't have a doctor in the family, it might take a couple of weeks to make an appointment, an entire day or half of a working day to go see a doctor, to talk with them for an hour, then to just have that prescription called in for the most benign simple little things. And so not just the cost of the interventions, but even the access to them uh, is itself a victim of scarcity. And I think that as neurosurgeons, we can easily forget that because our role in a lot of these scenarios is maybe not, it, it doesn't feel expensive to us. What we, for a life-saving surgery, we go to an OR, we spend an hour doing a decompression and that's just an hour of our time doing something that's pretty straightforward and maybe fun for us. And that's it. And there's huge amounts of cost associated with going into that room, the supplies that we use, the salaries of all the people in the room, keeping the lights on, obviously, but the hospitalization after that, or for cancer cases, the cost of the radiation, the, uh, the chemotherapies after that, it, we don't feel that viscerally because we aren't doing that and we aren't spending our time on that. So it's easy to forget how the cost kind of telescopes outside of our own little role. I mean, uh, one of your colleagues at UCSF, uh, Vinay Prasad, who's one of the more controversial people in a medical X these days, has, uh, I think, recently wrote this article about a, a double lung transplant for small cell cancer. I mean, if you want to talk about scarce resources in healthcare, that's uh, 
you know, that talk about investing something in one single life and maybe losing sight of the big picture. So how, how do you weigh what's going to happen to the patient after your small role in their overall care after the surgery? Is that even on your mind when you're making the decision to take someone to the OR? Is it on your mind when you're getting them out of the room? I like that you, you brought up Vinay. He and I are actually are friends and he, he yeah. gave a, a good grand rounds at, at UCSF neurosurgery. I believe it's hosted on his uh, YouTube page if anyone wants to check it out. Um, it was really interesting on how to evaluate evidence in, in um, primary literature. So yeah, I have to, have to give that a plug. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, that example that he gives, it made its, its rounds on X and social media. And it's a, it's a great example that illustrates the point that, you know, again, you can't, you can't have everything and then expect costs to stay down. Right. And we go through this a lot. Um, when, when we have to deal with prior auths, nobody likes prior auths, but you can't just have every single intervention approved and paid for, but then also be upset when your premiums go up, right? Because these, you know, these interventions cost money and we've socialized the costs. And so if you're, if you're accepting every high cost intervention, regardless of evidence, um, regardless of return on that investment, then premiums are going to go up and people have to pay for it. And it's not necessarily that individual that's paying for it. It's everyone else who subscribes to that same insurance plan. Um, so I know there, there's providers that my wife's an OB and, and uh, there's lots of providers that want every single one of their patients to have the most expensive wireless high-tech breast pump for after they, they deliver. Hmm. And, you know, it, again, when you're socializing that cost, that's one of the reasons why everyone has premiums go up. So you simply can't, you know, you can't give everybody the most high-tech, high-cost intervention and expect us to have continue to have low healthcare premiums. Or if, if the government's paying for it, you know, continue to run at a deficit and, and hope that your taxes stay down. It's just not realistic. And again, I think in our, in our situation as neurosurgeons, we don't have to worry about that as much. Yeah, we spend a lot of money, but if you look at the overall Medicare expenses on neurosurgery, we are a drop in the bucket. If you compare the neurosurgical costs to say podiatry in Medicare, we are a, a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket. So while I certainly think we should all be cost conscious, realize that that we're really not a huge driver of of Medicare expenses and of, of societal costs. I know back surgery gets a um, gets a lot of negative press for being too costly and low uh, low yield. It's actually considered one of the the uh, kind of low yield interventions when they do these these cost analysis studies. Hmm. But when you look at the actual Medicare spend on interventions for back pain, we are dwarfed by chiropractic intervention, by physical therapy, by uh, spinal injections, even even considering how much more we spend, our overall spend is way less than these other non-surgical interventions for what is a, a very common pathology. So I think we you know we have to be humble with when we consider cost, but also realize that as neurosurgeons, we're you know we're really not a huge part of the problem when it comes to overall costs. Yeah, and I I think um, we would struggle to be a large part of the cost problem because. The patients we care for, the disease entities that we treat, are not numerous. Uh, back pain certainly is numerous, but as you said, our role in the treatment of back pain on a national scale is uh, minuscule. But then the other pathologies that we treat are, by definition, quite rare. And so there's not a large number of neurosurgeons contributing to the cost of healthcare in the United States. So our contribution to its cost is necessarily low. 
So perhaps with that in mind, uh, at the risk of us sitting here and saying that things cost money and you know resources are limited for half an hour, I think we've made that point. So maybe we can think not about the scarcity of healthcare resources in terms of dollars and cents, but think about the scarcity of neurosurgeons as a healthcare resource. I'll point our listeners back to an episode from the very first season of this show with Dr. David Aconquo, where he spoke of neurosurgeons as a national resource, obviously with him in the setting of trauma and taking care of young people who get injured. But there is, you know, ongoing conversations about physician scarcity in the United States of all sorts, certainly primary care and family practice medicine. But there's a very small number of neurosurgeons in the country as well. So how do you see the landscape of neurosurgeons from the lens of scarcity in our country? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a, a multifaceted question. You have to think of uh, not only the training rate, but the attrition rate of neurosurgeons. And I think a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the uh, interventions over the last decade plus um, administratively and legislatively have sort of increased that attrition rate. Uh, Maya Babu had a good article a few years back just examining, you know, how many neurosurgeons take call and how many are are planning to continue taking call or continue practicing. Um, and the numbers are rather dire. And I think a lot of it has to do with declining reimbursement. If you look at Medicare reimbursement uh, compared to inflation since 2001, I believe we're down something like 30% uh, compared to you know, even keeping pace with inflation. And you know, if you stop paying for a resource, you're going to get less of that resource. Uh, and, and this, I think it's another, uh, I think it's actually a Milton Friedman quote. Uh, where he says, if you want to uh, have a scarcity of tomatoes, just make it a law that you can't sense, uh, can't sell a tomato for more than two cents, and you mm. will automatically generate a scarcity. And that's essentially what the government is doing with uh, neurosurgeon reimbursement, right? So if they're saying we're going to pay you less and less, they are artificially generating a scarcity. Um, <clears throat> and then you know when you consider all the other uh, bureaucratic the interventions that go into just day to day practice of neurosurgeon, right? Um, I'm coming out with an article on MIPS. And how uh, the, the MIPS program uh, disincentivizes neurosurgeons that work at safety net hospitals. So if you have these sort of interventions, quality metrics, um, the mandated of using cumbersome EHRs all going into place along with declining reimbursement, you're going to get an increased attrition rate of neurosurgeons. And then on the flip side, there's scarcity of how many neurosurgeons you can train, right? Uh, because as we mentioned, neurosurgery pathology is not all that common. In order to have a well-trained neurosurgeon, you have to have a variety of pathologies available at a certain training program. And that's why I think rightfully so, our RRC has um, uh, pretty stringent cutoffs for what a training program needs to create more neurosurgeons. So there's bottlenecks uh, on the training pathway as well. Yeah, and honestly, as a brief aside and tangent, because you mentioned EHR, I, as a public service announcement, wanna share something that I, if I recall correctly, I think I got from one of your posts on X um, did you sometimes this past year, you posted something about how there's no longer requirements for all these different components that have to be in a given note? Uh, yeah, there, there's not. So the, yeah, can uh, you share that with our listeners? Because this genuinely changed what I do at work every day and it saves time. Yeah, the, the uh, outpatient uh, evaluation and management ENM uh, criteria for CPT codes were changed, I believe in 2021. And then this year, the inpatient uh, ENM criteria were changed. So um, I encourage everyone to look up exactly what the criteria on, but you can do a lot of your notes just based on time now. So you no longer need 
a full review of systems. You don't need, need any review of systems um, for billing criteria anymore. Um, and the, the relatively onerous physical exam requirements, history requirements uh, that were in the ENM notes are now all gone. So I encourage everyone to look them up. For personally, what I do for my clinic notes is I do almost every clinic note just as a time-based note. So all you need is a time statement. Um, for inpatient ENM, it's a little more complicated because I think uh, for the acuity of our problems and our inpatient inefficiency, the time base doesn't really work for inpatient ENM. So I still use a medical decision-making note, but the documentation requirements to to get your maximum ENM billing, uh, even on medical decision-making for an inpatient note, are a lot less onerous than they used to be. So stop putting review systems in your notes. Stop putting this meaningless uh, physical exam that we all know you never listen to the heart and lung sounds. Um, <laughs> stop putting that in your note. It's no longer necessary. Yeah. Uh, th thank you for that. That genuinely did change my uh, on-the-job practices each day. And I mean, you know, we're Epic-based at Rush where I work. And so what it translated to in the moment for me was less F2 space enter, F2 space enter with all the dot phrases. But uh, certainly going back and looking at these notes, they're a lot more readable now, and they're a lot more information dense instead of all this filler that you have to wade through when you're uh, seeing a patient again a year later, so to speak. Um, but so thank you for uh, humoring my, my tangent there, uh, because I, I truly hope that that will help at least a few people, a handful of listeners, uh, as it did for me. But I, I do want to zero in on something you touched on, which was the idea of the training bottleneck. Uh, it is interview season as we're uh, speaking. It's December 2023. We're going through the interview season now. We've done a few episodes about the interview process this year already because we're back to in-person interviews nationwide in the United States now. I'll point our listeners to those, to those episodes in the past few weeks for a more focused conversation about the interview process and, and how that's unfolding this year. But, um, you know, not constrained to this year's interview cycle, but just thinking writ large about the process of training new neurosurgeons and bringing them into the national call pool, as it were. Um, you know, we've crossed paths on X a few times talking about uh, the number of residents each year, the complement size for a given program, and how that translates to things like 24-hour call shifts. And every year on, you know, medical Twitter and the national conversation, it becomes the old controversy renewed where people complain about working overnight and call shift length and duty hour restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. So I think some of the online conversations we've been part of before, we talk a little bit about how there's only so many people with GBMs each year. So you only have access to those cases for so many residents and you have to have someone available 24 hours a day. And when you're in attending, you need someone available overnight. And you can't make more neurosurgeons because there aren't enough tumors to train them on, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you see that landscape of bringing people into the national call pool when there's only so many patients to train them on? Is, is it a solvable problem? And do you think we're currently at or near the maximum number of trainees per year right now? Or do you think we still have room for growth? That's a good question. I think that the growth should probably be proportional to population growth because as as you get more people and older people, you're going to get enough pathology to keep training. So I think there will be growth of uh, neurosurgery trainees that sort of parallels our natural population growth. But 
I, the one thing I do want to dispel that I think is a myth that goes along whenever this conversation comes up is that Medicare has somehow capped the number of trainees. Um, and that's simply not true. Medicare has capped the number of trainees that it will fund. Um, but you don't need to fund a trainee spot in order to have a neurosurgery trainee. If an institution thinks that it is financially advantageous, they can create a trainee spot as long as they meet the RRC and ACGME requirements. And now again, I think that what those requirements should be is is a debate we can have. I think I, I think our RRC does a great job, and I certainly wouldn't criticize anything that they they do about the requirements for training a neurosurgery resident. But it's not it's not that the problem lies with legislation or with Medicare. The the problem just simply is you have to have enough of case volume in order to get these trainees. And you've seen you know we, if you look back that there are more and more neurosurgery trainee spots every year. Programs, new programs are opening. Programs are increasing their resident complement. So I think we're we're keeping up on the front end. Um, and I really do think that a, a large problem is the attrition rate on the back end. The fact that that Medicare is training is paying us less, uh, and they are making it more and more onerous to create uh, or to continue practicing as a neurosurgeon, especially to to continue taking call. Right? If you take overnight call, uh, you know that may disrupt your clinic the next day. That may disrupt your uh, elective schedule. Um, and when those are the things that really pay the bills and keep the lights on, uh, if those are getting cut more and more, meaning you have to do more intensity and more volume of elective output just to pay your bills, uh, then more surgeons are going to drop out of the call pool. Uh, so it, again, it, it's, it, it's a, a scarcity created at, at, I think more at the attrition level than at the training level. Hmm. Well, how can we fix that? Just kidding. That would be a you know, five-hour. That would be a five-hour. How, how long do we have? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But what what I would ask um, more realistically is, you know, you've uh, you've named some great authors in economics, and so anyone who's interested in diving into this field uh, headfirst has somewhere to start. Um, I would also say, following you and and some of the other colleagues that we've named today on X or other social media is a great place to start as well to contextualize these economic ideas within the field of neurosurgery and medicine writ large. And, and so you can understand some of these concepts in a language that you're already familiar with. But um, for our listeners who are active in the field of neurosurgery, be they medical students all the way up to attendings, um, rather than asking, how can we fix the attrition rate? How can anyone who's listening get involved in these circles of things? You know, we, we have uh, organized neurosurgery, the Washington Committee, um, uh, you know, interacting with people like you at meetings, listening to talks, reading your articles, but someone who's coming up in the field and sees these problems ahead and wants to help, where would you point them or who would you point them to, uh, to raise a hand and say, sign me up, what can I do? That's, that's a great point. Great question. Uh, so your, lo your local state society, if, if you have a local neurosurgery society is, the, is a great first step. Um, thankfully, in California, we have a very, very robust state society, uh, which in which I'm involved. And then the uh, Council for State Neurosurgical Societies, the CSNS, um, they meet uh, on the day or two prior to each of the national meetings. So the AANS and CNS national meetings, uh, where a lot of these socioeconomic issues are discussed and debated. Um, so if you are involved in your state society, you can become a delegate to the CSNS, but the CNS, CSNS is really open door. So you can uh, you know, show up to the national meeting a day or two early. You can go to some of the meetings. And if you just show up and express interest, uh, you will be utilized and put on some committees because uh, we love having interested folks around 
so the CSNS is great. If you're a resident or even a med student, uh, there are fellowships offered for the, through the CSNS. Um, it's a great way to get involved and uh, kind of get your feet wet in the socioeconomic and policy aspect of neurosurgery. And then the other thing I think is, is really important is, is donating to the neurosurgery PAC, the Political Action Committee. Um, you know, we're limited in the number of neurosurgeons, uh, so we, we can't match what some of the other larger specialties make in terms of political contributions, but we do punch above our weight a bit, and that is um, because of good involvement of our Neurosurgery Political Action Committee. Uh, Katie Orico, our lobbyist in Washington, does a fantastic job, um, but all her efforts uh, need some funding behind them. And so I think even if you're a resident, just you know, getting in the habit of donating a couple bucks to the Neurosurgery Pack every year and then you know, increasing that as your, as your pay scale goes up is, is hugely important. All hail Katie Arico fighting the good fight for us every day in DC. Absolutely. Um, well, then, just before we land the plane here, uh, a couple rapid fire questions just for fun. If you could have dinner and cocktails with one economist from any period in history, who would you pick? Milton Friedman. Wow, no hesitation. No. Uh, what would be your first question for him? How we can solve healthcare scarcity. <laughs> and that would take you all night. There you go. Oh, yeah. Um, or, or he'd have some snarky, quick-witted comment and we'd be done. Exactly. Exactly. If you were to leave academic practice and go into private practice as a neurosurgeon in 2024 in America, what state would you choose to set up practice in? Well, that's a loaded question that will get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I would go wherever my wife wants to go. Beautifully handled. Um, <laughs> very well done. And then uh, finally, a little more benign and, and safer for you, I guess. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the United States economy, what would you change? Ooh, about the economy? Writ large? That's tough. Um, it, my magic wand would be you know, greater access to markets, greater consumer choice, greater, uh, you know, and in healthcare, that means greater patient choice. Uh, without heavy-handed government intervention. Excellent. Well, Dr. DiGiorgio, thank you for coming on the podcast. I have uh, truly, even if you uh, want to posture yourself as a uh, interested amateur healthcare economist, I've learned a lot today. I'm sure our listeners have as well. And thank you, especially for sharing those resources for anyone who wants to learn more about this or get involved and help uh, the economic side of neurosurgery in the United States. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks again so much for having me, JP. It's been a pleasure. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.